As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello everyone. Today I am chatting with Dr. Nicole Christian Brathwaite. Dr. Nicole is the Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Non-Acute Care for Array Behavioral Care and CEO of WellMinds Consulting Company. She is a double board certified adult and child and adolescent psychiatrist who specializes in perinatal and postpartum mental health, trauma-informed care, telepsychiatry, mental health in communities of color, school psychiatry, and implicit bias and racism in mental health. Her experience and expertise are instrumental in efforts to advance behavioral care services, confront racial disparities, transform access to care, and deliver promising new options for underserved patients. In today's episode, we discuss warning signs for stress related to gun violence that parents can look out for, what to do if you observe those signs, how schools can be supporting our children in this current climate, and examples of how we can talk to our children about gun violence. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good afternoon, Dr. Nicole here, and I'm really excited to have you on today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to have you on to talk about something that I think many parents are having a difficult time with right now, and that is the increase, of course, in in gun violence that we've seen and also just how stressful it must be for children, you know, responding to this and what they might be hearing, not just from their own parents, but just if they hear something from the news or they hear something from a friend and the drills that we have at school, how those might be contributing to, you know, increased stress in our kids and how we can talk to them about that. So that's going to be what we discuss in today's episode. Have you seen an increase yourself in the fear and stress that your patients have related to gun violence in the U.S.? Uh, that, that's a great question. And unfortunately, the answer is a definite yes. I, I'm sure you've seen overall the, the levels of stress and mental illness in children and families has increased. But as we're watching TV, looking on social media, and we're seeing these devastating images of gun violence in schools, it's it's terrifying. I, I know immediately after the incident in Texas, I had a number of parents calling, asking should they send their kids to school. I had a number of kids emailing me asking if it's safe for them to go to school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that must be such a hard. I mean, 
to ask you that question, you know, like, how do you, how do you respond to that? Because it's like, there's no way of ever knowing, you know, whether they are, I mean, we don't know that they're safe, but they, they should feel safe in school. So I think that's where it's really hard too, because kids spend, you know, most of their time at home or at school and to not feel that safety net there, you know, because of, you know, something they might've seen on TV or something they heard from someone else, or it's just, it's such difficult question to answer. So how do you respond to them when they ask you that? It, it is a really difficult question because we never want to deceive or lie to our children, but we also need to reassure them. Kids don't learn if they don't feel safe. Kids aren't able to retain or comprehend information if they're not in a place where they feel secure and protected. And so in some ways, it's essential that we communicate to children that at least on a basic level, they're safe. And often when I'm talking to parents about how to have this conversation, again, I'm honest with them, certainly acknowledging the child's fear, acknowledging the frustration, but also being able to concretely list the things that are being done to keep them safe. For example, there's cameras in the school so that we're aware of who's coming and going. The, The school locks the doors, the very basic things that parents may know that the school is doing to keep them safe. So rather than just giving a blanket answer of, yes, you're safe, being able to provide specifics. Yeah. So curious as to what would your response be for certain ages of children? Like, for example, I struggle because my kids, for example, are eight and under, right? So they're still in elementary school. I wasn't personally sure of whether or not I talk about this at all. My fear as a mom is always that they're going to find out about something through someone else besides me. And that's not what I want. I want to tell them, listen, this happened. And if you have any questions about it, you can come to me. But I think my worst fear is that they find out through someone else, you know, that something might have happened and then what the repercussions of that might be, because it can be turned and twisted all these different ways. Do you know what I mean? What do you suggest for for parents of the of the more younger children? Like, do you suggest talking about that? Or do you just suggest, you know, saying, okay, well, we do these drills at school and we do this so that we're safe. Like, how do you talk about it? And I, you can't see me, but I'm nodding my head adamantly. Um, <laughs> I, I have two boys. My oldest just turned eight and my youngest is five. And I literally had the same conversation with my husband a few months ago because they this hadn't come up. They don't have active shooter drills in their school. And as much as possible, we try to avoid playing the news when they're around. We made the decision not to bring it up yet. And, I, and honestly, I, I don't know if there is a right or wrong decision. But uh, my eight-year-old came home and told me that one of his friends has a family member in Texas and and went into uh, unfortunate detail of of the events of the school shooting. Um, And he was very upset and very afraid. And and again, this is essentially my worst fear around how he finds out that information occurred. But it it did give us an opportunity to have that discussion. So Essentially, I, I gave him the space to communicate everything that he heard, asked him how he felt about it. And then once he communicated his experience, his feelings, then I was in a position to correct him in a way that was developmentally appropriate. I, I really tried to avoid discussing the death or loss of children. I think that that conversation is just a little bit too too much for him. But what we focused on is that there are some people that for whatever reason 
choose to engage in violence that could hurt other people. And sometimes this occurs in schools. And it occurred in, in this one school in Texas. But I can tell you that, you're, again, this is what your school does. You know, when I come to pick you up for a dentist appointment, I can't come in the school. I have to ring the buzzer and someone has to let me in and then I have to sign you out. So there are very specific security protocols that are in place to try to keep you safe. And of course, you know, kids, you know, they have this, this catastrophic thinking, well, what if the door doesn't lock or, you know, what if someone's not there? And again, giving him that space to express those fears. And I never minimize, I never diminish what his feelings are because they're, they're valid to him. And we just talk through it. And once he feels comfortable or once I'm getting signals from him that he's getting antsy, then I ask for permission to take a break. And if you want to come back to this conversation, we can. Yeah. No, I think that, I mean, first of all, the fact that he felt comfortable enough to come home and say, listen, this is what a friend told me. First, that's like, I feel like that's the biggest step, right? To be sharing that with his parents and saying, hey, listen, this happened. Like, what's going on here? And then to be able to vocalize all of those important feelings. I can only hope that like my kids, as they grow up, always want to be able to come home and, and tell me things. But I know that probably that won't always happen. But I think that's probably my goal is just to make it, our home a safe place for you to talk about literally anything. Given that that found that he found out that way, I feel like that best case scenario was that you were prepared. I mean, I don't think you could be more prepared with your career. <laughs> And answering all those questions for him, right? I, I would probably be like, oh, you know, you know um, I would need would a couple think. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't even know where to begin. But, you, you know, I think kind of talking through that and having people listen to how you responded to that, I think is perfect. I'd love to talk about some of the warning signs for stress related to gun violence that we should be looking out for as parents. Because I, I think that sometimes our kids they might be acting out or doing something out of the ordinary. And it could be because they're actually stressed about gun violence at school. And we don't really know that because they're not vocalizing it. So what could we be looking out for? That, that's a great question. And, and I would say certainly in regards to gun violence, but any significant stressor, you'll often see similar behavior. So one of the first things that we notice when kids are overwhelmed or when whatever is occurring in their environment outstrips their coping skills or their, their ability to handle it, one of the first things you may notice is a, a regression of behaviors. You know, I certainly remember when COVID started and there was a huge disruption in my kid's schedule in school. My five-year-old at the time, when he was four, he completely lost all the potty training we did. And I, I couldn't understand like, why, why are all of a sudden are you having these accidents? And then I had to remember his day, his structure, his life has been completely disrupted. And that, that's very stressful. And in, in the same way, and you know, frankly, even as adults, we tend to regress when we're right. overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, it, you know, it's certainly not surprising. So it, for younger children, elementary age children, you, we may see more whining or crying or having more tantrums or getting calls from school about disrupting the class or getting into arguments with other kids. Middle schoolers, you'll start to see, again, some, some of those elementary school behaviors. And same things with, with teenagers, you're going to start to see behaviors that you, you thought were gone. You didn't have to deal with that stage anymore. And it, it's not even a consistent showing. It, it could be inconsistent. Sometimes they're okay when they're distracted and they're engaging in a happy activity, but then other times you're seeing they're thinking about it or they're somehow being impacted, and you'll, you'll notice these behaviors. The other things that, you know, certainly we may notice would be a change in performance in school. 
grades dropping, not bringing assignments home, being more disorganized than is typical for them. A lot of kids also either, they, they tend to go one way or the other when it comes to attachment. They either isolate and they go to their room and they shut down and they don't want to engage or they're very clingy and they're all over their parents because that's safe and they want to be around something or feel safe. And I think that the last thing I'll say is when kids are particularly in that heightened stress and a heightened stress response, we'll see what's described as fight, flight, or freeze reactions. And that's essentially when we are in survival. We, are, we just are get, getting through the day, just getting through the moment, and we, we can't think beyond that. So kids, you know, they'll, again, shut down, or they're running out of the classroom, or they're yelling, or being more aggressive, verbally aggressive than normal, or they, they're just numb, and they're just completely unresponsive. Yeah. And I mean, as you said before, you know, being in this fight or flight type of situation is not an opportunity for the children to be able to learn in a classroom, you know, especially if, you know, being at school is that number one stressor for them. There's no way that they're going to be able to retain information, which is, you know, why they're going to school. So I think that that's really, really important to try to determine whether or not your child might be suffering from stress or anxiety. If you suspect that your child is suffering from you know, anxiety or depression related to gun violence, or really anything in general, right? What sort of care would you recommend to, you know, the parent who is concerned? That's a great question. And I would say, again, going back to the beginning of communication. And again, that, that communication varies based on the developmental stage. Certainly teenagers can be slightly more challenging to engage with. But again, I wouldn't stop trying because eventually, kids will realize, even if they're hesitant initially to communicate with parents, that it is a safe place. And a part of that communication has to include just acceptance and not communicating with judgment. So some kids will say, well, I, I don't want to tell my parents because they're going to tell me not to worry about it, or they're going to tell me you know, my concerns aren't real, or they're just going to, to say I'm overreacting. And, that, and that's hurtful when you're sharing something that's painful and you feel like those experiences are, or feelings are dismissed. So one of the first things I always tell parents, when you communicate, come to the conversation just to learn. Come to the conversation just with a willingness to hear them out, not jumping in with advice, not jumping in with your opinion, but giving them that space. Because one, kids surprise us with how much they know. It's amazing how much they end up absorbing. But two, we can be clear about where we may need to intervene. And a, a lot of what kids tell us is just a window into what they may be experiencing. And using a technique called reflective listening is just essentially summarizing what you've heard, listening, and then making sure that what your child told you is actually what they meant to communicate. And once you've gotten past that communication stage, if you're, if you're concerned or if your child is telling you they're feeling uh, anxious more often than not, they're feeling sad or angry more often than not. If it's impacting their quality of life or impacting their relationships, certainly at that point, I would recommend a referral to a therapist or talking to your pediatrician or a mental health professional. I would love it if you can you give us a quick example of reflective listening just so that we can kind of like get a feel for it. Absolutely. So I can use an example from, from my house. Yesterday, my eight-year-old came home. He was really, really frustrated. He wanted to trade a Pokemon card with a friend and the friend didn't give him the Pokemon card he promised. So when he came home, he was really irritable, picking on his little brother and you know snapping and I knew something happened. 
And so I, I sat him down and I, I said, Aiden, let, let's talk about what's going on. It seems like you're frustrated. Can you tell me about your day? And initially he was resistant, didn't want to talk about it. And so we went back and forth. And finally, I asked him, did anything happen today that made you angry? And then he started explaining the Pokemon situation, how his friend promised him one whatever card and he gave him a different one and he wouldn't give it back. And the counselors wouldn't make them, wouldn't allow them to trade again. And so I just let him talk. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, seriously, all of this for Pokemon cards? But I, you know, I realized for him, it mattered. That's everything. Yeah. Right. Exactly. In his life right now, Pokemon is one of the most important things. It's kind of worth it's refreshing <laughs> to hear, honestly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so giving him that space and, and again, so my reaction, wow, Aiden, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. That sounds like a really frustrating situation. So what you're telling me is that you and Anthony agreed to trade Pokemon cards, but it seems like he didn't hold up his end of the agreement and he gave you the wrong Pokemon card. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, mommy, That that's what I'm saying. Wow. It sounds like you feel angry about that. Yes, I'm very angry. But I wonder, are you also feeling sad because someone you trusted did something that wasn't honest? And so then that's kind of how it opened up the conversation, not only to ensure that he felt validated and I heard his story, but then I'm also working on building his emotional vocabulary. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And so how did the conversation end? Did you get like, how did you end it? So I, I asked him if he wanted me to help him, if he wanted me to speak to the counselor or if he wanted to try to handle it. And I gave him the control. One of the things that trauma or stress does, it takes away our power. It takes away our sense of control. And even small things, if we can give kids the opportunity to choose from two options for dinner. So you can have spaghetti or you can have hot dogs. Even that level of control can, can be helpful. So I, I gave him the choice to decide how he wanted to proceed. So his decision was that he wanted to try again to get his card back before I intervene. And I, I gave him that freedom to do that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a perfect example. Thank you for sharing that. Today's episode is sponsored by Haya. Haya vitamins are pediatrician approved, super powered vitamins for kids. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies, then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, B12, C, zinc, folate, and many others to help support immunity, energy, brain function, mood, concentration, and more. Haya has been part of our daily routine for over a year now, and the kids love them. We switched over from a daily gummy vitamin, and we were worried that they wouldn't like the taste of these, since they contain zero sugar. But I'm happy to say we were wrong. Haya vitamins are sweetened with monk fruit, which makes them taste delicious. Just make sure they stay out of reach from your kids. I have a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin for 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to hayahealth.com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. This link will be in the show notes as well. As 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I would love to hear from you as, you know, I know that you provide psychiatric services to both children and adults, and you do this through telehealth. Is it mostly telehealth or? Completely telehealth. Completely telehealth. Would you recommend telehealth as an alternative to in-person care for conditions like PTSD, ADHD? That, that's a great question. I, I work for a telepsychiatry, telehealth company called Array Behavioral Care. And we fortunately are able to provide therapeutic services in every single state in the country. Oh, that's and, amazing. Right. Yeah, no, it yeah. is. And, I, and, and I'm grateful for that because I, I live in Boston. My, my clinic primarily is in Illinois, in very, very rural parts of Illinois. And so I am able to provide care to kids, many of whom have significant trauma, in, in ways in which they otherwise wouldn't be able to access psychiatric care. And a lot of the studies show that actually the outcomes and of in-person care versus telepsychiatry are equal. But it, it really depends on the comfort level of the child or of the parent. There's certainly a level of convenience that comes with telepsychiatry. When I was doing having my clinic in person, mom or dad or parent would have to leave work go pick up the kid from school. The kid would have to miss the second half of school, come to my visit and then leave. Mom may have to go back to work. Kid may, may be too late to go back to school. Hours of their day has been interrupted. But now with telepsychiatry, I often will ask the school nurse to just bring the kid in at the time of the appointment and the parent will join from work and they're both on Zoom and we're able to have that conversation. And the only part they've missed of their day is, is 30 minutes versus hours. I do, for multiple reasons, think that telepsychiatry is one, effective, but it's it, it's accessible. And it also provides a level of comfort and privacy that potentially going into a building or having to leave work or leave home may not provide. But certainly, I treat a number of, if not the majority of, of kids I work with have significant anxiety and PTSD. And I found this this modality to be very effective. And, you know, I'm thinking as you're talking that it's it's extremely convenient for those that might not have transportation as well. You know, people that otherwise would have to try to take the bus or other, you know, modes of transportation relying on, you know, whatever time it might get there. That's just a great option for people that can't worry about all of that and they don't have a car, you know? Okay. So I would love to talk more about how you feel that schools are currently supporting and providing students with the resources that they might need right now, specifically just because obviously we've been talking about, you know, gun violence because of the Uvalde shooting. And prior to that, it was probably 
Sandy Hook, I would think, right? Because then before that, we had Columbine. And and so I feel like right now, what are our schools doing? Is it enough support? Do we need more? What do you think? I mean, we always need more, frankly. I, we, we certainly do not have enough mental health professionals in general, but certainly mental health professionals that work with children or are embedded in schools. There, There's just simply never going to be enough to, to truly support all of the kids that need it. I do think because of the stressors of COVID, because of the significant increase in school gun violence, that schools are, are trying to be more proactive in addressing kids' concerns. It is slightly better than, let's say, a few years ago, but I still feel that we, we tend to be more reactive than proactive. We often tend to wait until there's a problem before addressing it. So the, the child that ends up in the social worker's office or the school nurse's office is the child that's causing problems or being disruptive or, you know, wrote a note that is is concerning or drew a picture that's scary. I do wish that we would be more proactive in our school systems and screening early for kids. So asking parents if there have been any recent stressors at home, inquiring about changes in behavior, you know, how do we know? How does the school or the teacher know if your child is stressed? What what does that look like for them? So that then the the teachers are able to identify a concern and rather than disciplining it, being able to refer that child to to the school nurse or to the mental health provider and not waiting until it gets to the point where the the child's behavior is so disruptive that they they can't be in school. Other things that I have seen, I, I certainly receive a number of calls from schools and school systems around professional development for teachers. Many more schools are, are now recognizing the importance of being trauma-informed and realizing how many students are coming in with so much pain. And so that, that's been great that schools have been open to having these conversations. Certainly, the number of calls I've gotten have exponentially increased over the last three years. So at the very least, teachers are aware and they, they're, they're anxious to learn more. Yeah. So if somebody here is listening now that's, you know, part of a school committee or admin or is a teacher, what would your recommendations be for them right now? Uh, one would be try, trying to get as much information as possible about what it means to be trauma-informed, how to become a trauma-informed teacher, how to become a trauma-informed school or institution. Because essentially what that means is that we are looking at children from a holistic perspective. We are recognizing that everyone comes into the classroom with some level of pain, potentially some level of loss. And if we approach every child with that empathy and love, it not only helps the children who are truly suffering, but it helps the entire classroom. And it also allows us to, to be more aware and more sensitive to, to challenges that kids may face and to also notice those behavioral changes again, before it becomes a significant problem. I'm thinking too, I mean, I have no idea what this would entail, but you know how you go to the pediatrician and they oftentimes give you a form to fill out that says, and postpartum as well. And the form says, how are you feeling about this? Do you ever have feelings of this? And I'm thinking to myself, could we come up with some type of a form, right? That has these questions that are age appropriate for children in schools and having them fill it out once or twice a year or how often however often we think they might need to be screened. And I don't know, I feel like as a a teenager, for example, if I was filling out that form and I was having a lot of trouble with something and I was feeling really depressed, that form might be that that way out for me if I didn't feel comfortable with anybody else in my life, you know, and it said, are you feeling really sad and depressed right now? And I could circle that. Yes, it would be like that out for me where I'm actually able to reach out for help 
because I, I don't feel comfortable doing it any other way. And I'm just thinking out loud right now. I just feel like that might be something that would be really helpful. Obviously, there would be a lot that would have to go into that. And I have no idea what it might entail. But we don't have anything like that right now, right? Where we could screen kids that way and, and pick out the ones that do seem like they're having trouble and, and kind of talk to them separately. We do. There are oh, a number of, yes, we, it's just, it hasn't been implemented widely, unfortunately. So there, there are a number of screening questionnaires that are available that, that don't delve in too much because again, we, teachers are everything, right? They're teachers, yeah, they're everything. guardians, they're, yeah. you know, they, they essentially play every role at some yeah. point during the day. And I'm, I'm certainly not asking a teacher to be a therapist, but honestly, during the school year, our kids spend more time with the teachers than they do with us often. And so that, that teacher is really the first line of defense. And so there are screening questionnaires available that can be administered to children or given to families to one, identify early signs of depression or signs of suicidal thoughts, but then also even basic forms like what are they interested in? What excites them? What scares them? And again, being able to identify those different behaviors that would trigger a red flag in the teacher's mind that, that something is going on. And so it can be a certainly a formal questionnaire that has you know, been vetted and it's evidence-based, but it can also be something very simple that a school creates just to get that basic information. There's a child psychiatrist, his name is Bruce Perry, and he, he wrote a book called the, the Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. And it's a book about his experience working with kids with significant trauma. And, and one of the things that he notes is that one of the most important things for a child is having a very intimate and unconditionally loving relationship with an adult. And when you look at kids that have experienced extreme trauma, those kids that do better, that are they're more resilient, that are able to, to come out of that experience are often the kids that have that adult who cares that they have that adult who understands and knows them. And so giving the teacher early on that information can open up that window to really develop a relationship with a child that, that could make a huge difference in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. So I wanted to go, go back to earlier in the conversation. Did you say that your school does not have active shooter drills? No, they, they don't. My, my sons attend a Catholic school, and I don't know if that's why they don't, but mm. they have never had any active shooter drills at school. Oh, that's so interesting. So when I was on a previous podcast, I had a violence epidemiologist on there, and she I think she had quoted uh, 95% of schools have the drills in the U.S., but you know, she had said, you know, these drills are not backed by any, there's no evidence that they are helpful necessarily. It might help with the emergency preparedness aspect of it. But, you know, you know, are we causing more psychological stress and things like that? You know, I, I hope that they look more into that as a whole, just because I don't know. I think it's probably the delivery of it that's the most important. At least here, we definitely have them, but they're very they're like very discreet. Like you wouldn't never, you, you wouldn't know you're doing the drill because of an active shooter necessarily. I think they do a really good job of, you know, concentrating on the emergency part of it and not, you know, oh, we're doing this because of X, Y, and Z. At the American Academy of Pediatrics essentially has said that the same thing. They've, they've come out with statements saying that active shooter drills really should more closely resemble a fire drill than anything yeah. else in the same way that, you know, we don't light a fire in a school to, to start a fire <laughs> drill. And we, we're not, you know, there's not chaos. It's very organized. It's very calm. You know, if we think back to, to our elementary school days, I was never afraid 
fire drills. It was just something we had to do. And if we approach active shooter drills in the same way, there, there's not that fear component. I, I've certainly read about schools that actually have people coming in with replicas of guns or you know, having it be a more chaotic situation. That is not helpful. And if anything, that's quite harmful. Yeah, I, I had heard about a school and I can't say the exact, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but there was a school that had said, okay, you know, so-and-so you're going to be the victim. And then so, you know, somebody else is going, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, what on earth? No, really? I mean, like, what on earth? Why, why would that ever be part of any type of drill. Anyway, so I think that obviously that's an extreme. I don't think schools around the US are doing that. I think these are probably the more extreme cases. But, you know, I think it's important, you know, if you're listening and this is something important to you, just calling your school and saying, hey, you know, I'd love to learn more about how you, you know, practice your drill, what goes into it, and just finding out if it's something that you want your child participating in. Um, I think most schools probably do it that way, where it's, you know, more of like a fire drill type of situation. I know, like our kids, they're just like, Oh, yeah, you know, we did this drill today. And we did x, y, and z. And that was it, you know, and no stress, you know, that I could see associated with it. I had a couple other questions that I wanted to ask you about things that we were talking about. Oh, have you seen in the last couple of years, I know that there's, there's just been a lot of stress upon stress in the last couple of years. And have you personally seen that within your own practice where just this immense amount of people coming in with stress-related issues? Yes, absolutely. And there are certain populations that I work with that seem to be more vulnerable. A number of uh, LGBTQI kids that I work with have really struggled. Kids who consider themselves to be uh, victims of bullies or on the fringe of social circles they're afraid because they they feel like that they would be targets or, you know, kids that are socially awkward or struggle. I I even have a patient, unfortunately, kids tease him and call him a school shooter because he's, he has autism and he struggles with connecting. And so he's, he's being bullied because of some of the social struggles that he has. And so they're, there's certainly more vulnerable populations that are really struggling with this, but Overall, in general, there certainly have been not only increases in requests for seeing a psychiatrist and therapist, but we've also seen increases in emergency room visits in adolescents and increases in suicide attempts. Yeah, I work in the emergency department and where I work is specifically adult only. I mean, we will get occasional children that do come through the door that we have to treat. But for the most part, you know, it's an adult only and the children's hospital is nearby. But we have also, I mean, the same. I mean, we've been seeing significantly increased, you know, mental health requirements of our patients. And I mean, arguably, I tell this to people all the time, I feel like every single person could benefit from talking with you know, a mental health provider, you know, however that limit might look for you. I just, I think especially in the times that we live, it's just, it's nice to be able to have that person on the outside of your circle where you're just able to kind of say, Hey, I'm worried about all of these different things. And just being able to get it out in the open is just like an immense relief. Once you're done, I like recently, and I, you know, I'm saying this, but I haven't been that great about it myself, but in the fall for the first time ever, I had gone to a, a mental health provider just to just to talk about all these different things that are happening and especially 
postpartum, four kids. I mean, all these different oh my hormones. And, I mean, oh, oh crazy. You're crazy. a hero. <laughs> a crazy person. Like, And so some days I wake up and I'm like, why am I so crazy? The next day I feel fine. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't handle all of this. You know, and of course, on top of everything else that's been going on, I mean, coming out of, well, currently still in pandemic and, you know, having both my husband and I, you know, working that and, and all the implications that have come with that. And, and it's just everything together. So finally decided to go and I'm like, why haven't I done this sooner? You know, and my husband's like, yeah, I mean, everybody should have, it's just, a, it's a great thing to be able to, to have as a tool in your toolbox. And I feel like so many people think that by, you know, requesting help or saying I need to see somebody, they're scared to do it or they're worried or, and, you know, I just, I think it's just something that's takes a lot of courage. And I, I hope that this is, if you're on the brink or on the cusp of, of reaching out to somebody, just do it because it, you won't regret it. It'll make you feel so much better. It, it's nice to have somebody in your corner, someone to talk to. Anyway, that's kind of like a whole tangent that I had there. I a hundred percent agree. I, I think as you mentioned, people assume that you have to be sick or ill before going to a, a therapist. But you know, I, I look at it as going for our annual physical. I don't have to be sick for that, but it's a routine visit to check and you know to make sure everything is okay. But also I, I particularly parents when they go to therapy, any anything we do for ourselves, we feel like it's taking away time from our family. But honestly, you deserve it. You you we put pour so much into the lives of our children and our spouses. And my grandmother used to always say, you you can't pour from an empty cup. And going to therapy, dedicating that time to ourselves is is actually supporting our family. It's providing us with coping skills. It's it's giving us the ability to to handle our kids when they're driving us absolutely insane. And we are, you know, we're able to still maintain our composure when you really inside want to explode, but using therapy as as an outlet. So I, I strongly encourage everyone. I, I certainly am engaged in therapy and have been for years. And I don't know what I would do without it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're a better parent when you take that time for yourself. And I myself was just surprised. You'll be chatting about whatever the topic might be. And then the questions that, you know, get asked back to you, just like this reflection can be so eye opening sometimes. You're like, well, I didn't even think of that or think about something that way. And it's oftentimes really helpful to have that, that reflection. I wanted to ask you your thoughts. We had mentioned very briefly about the reactions that kids might have as far as stress that they might have related to certain things like gun violence or something else that's stressful in their life and that they might shut down and they might be the type of child that wants to run up to their room and close the door and kind of close off, be closed off. I'm wondering, for me, that would be harder as a parent than having a child cling to me, because at least if they're clinging to me, I can offer them that hug and that support and be there for them. And I would feel like I was making a difference. Whereas if my child was being very closed off and just not talking to me or, you know, hiding up in their room, I would feel like I couldn't help them. But are there things that we can do with a child that that's their response? How should we, or how could we as a parent respond to them that lets them know that we're still there for them? 
That's a really difficult situation. And you're right. It's incredibly challenging when a child shuts down. And sometimes they may even physically be in your presence, but they're completely walled off and they've put up a barrier between themselves and other members of their family. And it seems like you just can't get through. So one thing I always encourage is persistence uh, because ultimately that eventually they'll talk to someone, even if it's not a parent. If you if you realize that you you may not be the person to get through to them, if there are other adults in their lives who they trust and who they're comfortable with, inviting those adults to call them or to come over. So an aunt, an uncle, the parent of a friend, even if it's not you, ensuring that they have someone that they can safely discuss their feelings with is important. And then, you know, one, another option is to meet them where they're at. For example, one of the families I work with, we, we had a 12-year-old who was really depressed and she would completely isolate in her room. And, and it was always a struggle to, to get her out. And sometimes we were concerned about what she was doing in her room, whether it was tearing things up or even potentially hurting herself. And, and we could not get her out. So finally, one day I was talking to her and, and I asked her, like, what is your absolute favorite thing to eat? Like if somebody offered it to you, it doesn't matter how full you were, you would still take it. And she said, chocolate ice cream with sprinkles. And so I'm like, awesome. So I told the parents that her favorite thing in the world is chocolate ice cream with sprinkles. And what about every single Saturday making that a family trip and going to get chocolate ice cream with sprinkles and sitting, it doesn't matter how cold or how warm, that is what you do for her because that's what she's indicated is enjoyable. And that's what she enjoy it likes. And so they would sit outside for 20 or 30 minutes every single Saturday eating chocolate ice cream with sprinkles. And eventually she opened up because this was something she enjoyed and it was a safe place. And, and we even practiced with the parents how to communicate in a non-judgmental way. And that then allowed her to feel comfortable to share her, her feelings. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And I mean, it's, it's a very easy thing to do. You know, you could do that with anything. If they respond that their favorite thing is going out for ramen or their favorite thing is going out to McDonald's for a cheeseburger or something every Saturday, that's what you do. All right. So I think that's all I have for you, unless you have anything that you might want to add to the episode that we might not sure, touch on. I, I would just emphasize to parents and teachers that when a child is overwhelmed, when they're in that fight, flight, or freeze, when you can clearly see that they're stressed, they're not in a position to learn. And so I always remind teachers, pushing a child to memorize or recite when they're clearly distressed is actually doing more harm than good. And, and so what's really important for, for parents and teachers is looking up and understanding different ways to help kids release that stress help them to calm down so they, they're out of that survival mode and back into that safe, restful mode. Even things like yoga, mindfulness, taking a few deep breaths, even incorporating those activities throughout the day can actually help move a child from that survival state to a place of feeling better and being able to learn. Yeah. And I think that could apply just as easily at home, right? Like if our child is stressed, even from something at home where they're like fighting with a sibling or, you know, something is causing them a lot of stress and just kind of stopping and saying, okay, like, let's do this together. would probably be helpful. Absolutely. Right? And, and, you, and you'll certainly yeah. know with your kids what works. My, my eight-year-old sensory things are very important. So when he's overwhelmed, I give him either Altoids or Sour Patch Kids and that kind of snaps him out of whatever mode he's in. My five-year-old needs hugs. So when he's really frustrated, he'll come over and tell me, mommy, I need a squeeze. And, that, and that's helpful for him.
All right, perfect. So we're going to end the episode with two questions that I ask all my interviewees. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice as a mom to another mom, what would it be? It could be about anything, not just what we talked about. Oh, today. wow. That's a great question. I would say to prioritize yourself. And I, I know that's really hard for, for moms to do. I, I'm sure we've all experienced being at that point of burnout, feeling like you're, you're at your wit's end. And we all know that when, when we're overwhelmed, we're not great parents. So as much as possible, engage in self-care. And I, I don't mean going to the spa or getting a massage, although do that as well if you have the time and the opportunity, but focusing on things that, that build you up, that edify you. I focusing on things you enjoy. I love rom-coms. For me, that's my time. And at night when I put the kids to bed, I throw on whatever. Right, exactly. time. Um, but I can decompress <laughs> and it feels like my time. And so really I, I prioritize that. I carve that time out of my day because I, I realize that I need that in order to handle tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then the second question is, if you could make one meal for your family that everybody would eat, that is relatively quick and easy. What would that meal be? <laughs> um, I would mm. say spaghetti. <laughs> what kind of spaghetti? What so kind of we, sauce do you use? Put yeah, anything so on we, it? Um, we found, I, I haven't been able to find it recently, but my kids love this pasta that's like spinach pasta. And Ooh. so I, you know, call myself adding a vegetable to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. We we love like turkey, balls, um, Mm -hmm. pasta, sauce. And again, I'll try to, I have to sneak in vegetables. So I might throw in some onions and peppers and mix it all up together. And so then that's one meal where I feel like they're they're getting all of the, the core requirements and they're happy. So I have one one child of mine that is like an investigator <laughs> and I will chop up as much, like as small as I can, like using a machine to like chop these vegetables up. And I swear, he's like, mommy, is that onion? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Like it's basically see-through. Like how do you see this thing? I don't understand. But yeah, that's like one of our go-tos too, because it's it so is. easy, spaghetti. And we get this big bag at Costco of yes. meatballs, and my kids are like obsessed with them. And I throw those into the little tiny convection oven that we have, and then I just throw on the pot of water, and it's like the best yep, meal and it, ever. And it lasts, so um, it's even better. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's, yeah, even, even the baby like loves it, like gobbles it up, so... All right. Well, that is it. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Nicole, for joining us and teaching us how to be, you know, better parents for our children that might be stressed or overwhelmed right now. This was really, really helpful. Thank you so much. This is this has been a joy. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.